welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, we are on part two of our Epic LIBOR series. Uh, yeah, I'm, this is, uh, I'm very excited about this series. I'm, uh, you know, I always learn a lot from uh, doing these podcasts with you. But I, this is one area that I know is a incredibly important to the way the financial system works, uh, LIBOR and the transition away from it, and also an area that I uh, don't know nearly enough. So I'm very excited that we are moving on to part two of this series. Yeah. And just as a reminder, uh, if, if you haven't listened to the first episode, you definitely should. Uh, but we basically spoke about everything that went wrong with LIBOR sort of pre and post financial crisis. So just as a quick reminder, uh, there was a huge LIBOR scandal. The idea of having banks submit uh, the reference rate for basically an unsecured loan that would be made between dealer banks was really thrown into doubt. And cue or fast forward to where we are today, and there's a huge effort underway to try to replace LIBOR with a brand new reference rate. Right. And just, I mean, I assume everyone should have listened to the first episode, but just a reminder why we care in part is because so many financial contracts, derivatives, loans, et cetera, are priced in some way off this singular reference rate. And so when it was sort of everyone realized that the old one had flaws uh, in terms of how it was constructed and it was open to manipulation and so forth, there is now the effort underway to get all these contracts and debts and everything else uh, to price around a new singular standard. Yeah. So in this particular episode, we're going to focus on what that new reference rate is. And we have really the perfect person to talk about it. Uh, someone who's been covering the short-term dollar funding markets for years now, and I've certainly been reading his research for years. It's Joe Abate, uh, Barclays analyst. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. How's the LIBOR transition going? How would you characterize where we actually are at this moment in time? I'd say that we're making progress. Um, you know, within the last two years, we obviously decided on what kind of benchmark replacement rate to use. I think the challenge at this point is to get people to actually use it. We're seeing developments of in futures markets and term rates that reference this. We've seen people start to issue off of uh, the rate itself. But, you know, this is still, relatively speaking, uh, early days in the process. You know, we need to see volumes uh, in particular in uh, a number of different sectors, whether it's the issuing front in terms of borrowing, whether it's in terms of hedging. Uh, we need to see that activity pick up at this point. So I'd say early days. Uh, but hopefully optimistic. So just to back up for a second, we know that uh, after, after it was sort of agreed upon that LIBOR couldn't be sustained, what are the regulatory demands and from whom were these regulatory demands made on the financial system to find and develop a new reference rate? So um, pretty much it was a global uh, effort, but largely it came from uh, out of the UK where they were regulating uh, the 
PRA was regulating the um, LIBOR. And, you know, obviously they had done the work, you know, in terms of the identifying the deficiencies in the unsecured rate. And so, you know, they were leading the effort. It was adopted by the Federal Reserve, uh, I think back in 2014, and the Fed uh, effectively convened a committee called the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, which then began work to find an alternative reference rate. And then once that reference rate was uh, decided, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee would move to kind of the adoption phase, right? So speaking to end users, if you will, to get them to start using the new rate. So it's been a, you know, to your point, it's been a multi, multi-year process begun with uh, regulators. So the alternative reference rate that they eventually settled on, and we spoke a little bit about this in the first episode, but it's something called the Secured Overnight Financing Rate or SOFR, SOFR. How did they settle on that one? And and what, in your view, is the key difference between it and uh, the predecessor LIBOR? They essentially gave the uh, Alternative Reference Rate Committee marching orders and told them, you know, find a replacement rate. Uh, it must be based on a transparent, liquid and deep uh, market um, so that you wouldn't have a submission process, as is the case with LIBOR. And there were certain rates that you were not allowed to use, basically policy instruments, right? So you couldn't use the Fed funds rate, for example. And, you know, after much deliberation, the Alternative Referendary Committee settled on the uh, SOFR. And the key differences that I think between SOFR and LIBOR are really threefold, right? One is that the SOFR rate is an overnight interest rate. And of course, LIBOR is a three-month rate with a forward-looking component. The second is that SOFR is a treasury repo rate. So again, it's a secured uh, funding rate. And LIBOR is an unsecured bank borrowing rate. And then the third element of this, which is tied to that, is the fact that LIBOR incorporates bank credit risk, uh, which is not present in SOFR, right? So as a treasury repo rate, you know, essentially you're borrowing money by pledging treasury collateral. It should be, especially on an overnight basis, should be risk-free. So again, you have a credit component, a term component that are not present in the, um, in, in, in SOFR. So you mentioned that the, the the sort of benchmark rate couldn't be just a pure policy rate. So we can't just say, oh, base it on Fed funds. But isn't a system uh, that sort of de facto, uh, if it's based on uh, the repo prices and repoing credit-free treasuries, isn't it, it sounds to me like kind of a backdoor policy rate nonetheless? I think that's correct. I, I think that, you know, SOFR moves in tandem with, uh, with changes in the policy rate. So when the Fed cuts rates, SOFR goes down. And generally speaking, it goes down by about the same amount. I think the 
difference uh, is that the Fed's policy rate, the Fed funds rate, is based on a fairly small market. And there's only effectively uh, one lender in that market. You know, the Fed doesn't want to tie its policy to a benchmark interest rate where it's possible in the future that, let's say, the Fed decides that the Fed funds market is too small and wants to use a different policy instrument. If all of these $100 trillion or so in terms of LIBOR exposure, if all of that was based on Fed funds, you know, moving to a different policy rate would be a much more complicated uh, issue than just deciding on you know, the communications strategy that the Fed is going to adopt. So I agree, it's kind of a backdoor uh, approach. But again, SOFR uh, is based on, you know, a huge volume of transactions. Uh, one final point that I want to make too is that in an ideal world, the Fed has complete control over the Fed funds rate. In repo and in SOFR, the Fed doesn't have complete control over uh, SOFR. It can influence SOFR and is very effective in doing that. But, you know, sometimes SOFR moves, um, you know, kind of independent of um, Fed actions. I I wanted to bring up exactly this point, which is in September of last year, we saw repo, the repo rate shoot up. And then we saw the SOFR rate basically spike along with it. And there were some people at the time who made the point that maybe you don't want a reference rate that can be that volatile. Um, What's your takeaway from that experience? My takeaway from the experience is that, yes, that, you know, uh, as I was saying before, you know, SOFR, the Fed can influence it, but can't control it you know, on a high frequency basis day by day. I think the volatility in the overnight SOFA rate is a little bit misleading in part because the expectation is that when people, you know, move to a uh, SOFA world, they're going to be using an average of daily uh, SOFA quotes. So, You're going to be looking at, you know, whether it's a three-month average, uh, a one-month average, you're going to be taking that as as your benchmark reference rate as opposed to the overnight interest rate. So that should take some of the volatility out of the the overnight rate that, you know, people are concerned about. But again, you have to take an overnight interest rate and convert that into a term rate like LIBOR, which means that you're doing some averaging. The question is, am I doing averaging from a backward-looking perspective, or am I doing the averaging from a forward-looking perspective? And that's a key difference between LIBOR and SOFR, right? Where LIBOR is, you know, kind of what do I think the average bank funding rate is going to be over the three months? If I'm looking at SOFR, I'm basically saying, you know, at least at this point, What's the average overnight interest rate over the past three months, right? And that's a little bit different than than LIBOR. Uh, Joe, I have a 
quick question and then a follow-up question. The quick question is, what is the official deadline, uh, remind me, for when this transition is supposed to have been completed? So the official deadline uh, for the end of publication of LIBOR is December of 2021. Okay. So the longer question I have is, explain to us the complexity. Why is it, and I, I know you were just talking a little bit about it in terms of the depth of this market and the challenge of converting an overnight rate into a term rate. Talk to us about the specific difficulties of, you have all these contracts, that are denominated in LIBOR, why we can't just go through all the contracts, scratch out the line, LIBOR, replace them with SOFR and the new world is here. Yeah, I mean, I wish it were that simple, uh, it turns out. (laughs) No, I'm aware it's not, otherwise we wouldn't even be having this conversation, but. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, there's a technological challenge, right? That in many cases, there's hundreds and thousands of different uh, instruments or references that a single bank may have uh, that refers to LIBOR. You can take the example of of an oil company, for example, where it's not really using LIBOR as a borrowing rate. It's using it as a penalty rate for people who, you know, hypothetically don't make a delivery. They have to pay a charge that's equal to LIBOR plus 500. And you have to go through and find all of those references, which is a monumental task. Hmm. Second element of this, uh, I think, is that when you look at most uh, financial market contracts, uh, they have not been, you know, written with fallback clauses or adequate fallback clauses for a situation in which LIBOR doesn't exist. So, you know, they, they were kind of developed without a, a replacement rate in mind. And because of that, there are certain things that can happen. So if you had, uh, you know, some contracts where you know, the default assumption if LIBOR is not available is the floating rate on your instrument becomes whatever the last posted LIBOR rate was, and your security becomes effectively a fixed rate security. So let's say that you've hedged yourself or you think you've hedged yourself against uh, interest rate risk. You're now going to have an instrument where, you know, the final years of its maturity, it's fixed. And that interest rate is whatever happened to be the last posted LIBOR rate. So if we're in a super high interest rate environment uh, at some point and you fixed it at whatever that rate is and rates fall, you're going to be experiencing a payment shock of some kind. So I think that, that that's the problem. And again, it's a big legal challenge to kind of go through and write these or rewrite these uh, fallbacks. And that's just, that's floating rate notes. I'm not talking about mortgages or uh, syndicated loans and things like that, where, you know, in some cases you need to have 100% approval of all the investors to agree to change the coupon on the security. It's a much, much bigger challenge than just cutting and pasting. Are there any operational risks in the meantime during this time when we're actually making the transition from LIBOR to SOFR? Uh, For instance, a few people have been talking about the prospect of 
zombie LIBOR, which is this reference rate that is sort of dead, uh, but basically still operational and haunting the market in many ways and might not be totally reflective of what's actually going on in funding markets. Is that a risk? I think it's a potential risk, although I, I think that regulators are you know, realizing that that's a, a challenge. And so, you know, the they've been kind of recommending people put in kind of what's known as pre-cessation clauses. And the um, pre-cessation clause would basically, you know, kind of trigger itself in the event that regulators deem that LIBOR itself is not a representative interest rate. Once that happens, you know, the expectation is that publication of LIBOR would cease. To your point about the zombie uh, situation, you might have a scenario, let's say, where, you know, regulators have said the rate is no longer representative, but it's still being published. So you now have kind of a published interest rate that people can, you know, legally still use but it's been deemed unrepresentative. And that, that's kind of your zombie LIBOR situation. You know, zombie LIBOR in other cases would require banks to kind of continue to contribute to the uh, LIBOR panel. And I struggle to see situations in which banks would willingly contribute to uh, an index when they don't have to, and when there's an alternative benchmark that other people are using. So to me, I think that zombie LIBOR risk is, is a low probability, um, but you know, there's probably other operational risks that we need to consider that you know, people are working on right now. So just in terms of hitting regulatory benchmarks in demands, how realistic are they in your view in terms of making this changeover and what other kind of uh, forbearance or moves might regulators be forced to make you know, in the uh, coming months ahead to deal with the question of whether we can actually uh, sunset LIBOR as planned? You know, you could probably make the case that there should be a legislative uh, approach that prevents, you know, a litany of um lawsuits uh, that could follow, you know, triggering of fallbacks and the replacement of the uh, of LIBOR. We might see something along those lines um, in the future, right, to kind of speed the process along and to kind of prevent it from getting gummed up. Banks are probably the furthest along in terms of the transition and making the necessary language and fallbacks and things like that. I think the non-financial sector is probably not quite as uh, far along in this process. And, you know, that might require, you know, more education and urgency uh, from ARC and regulators. I'm not sure how that gets done, to be honest. How much does um, the creation of things like... um so for futures actually help? Because I think uh, the CME has been rolling out those contracts um, and we've actually had a few trades. Does that help with adoption? I actually think it's necessary for uh, adoption, right? You need a derivatives market that you can rely on uh, for two reasons. One is to develop that term forward-looking 
uh, SOFA rate that I mentioned earlier. The second is that you need this market to be able to hedge, right? You need to be able to know that I can convert a series of floating rate payments into fixed rate payments if I want to or go in the other direction. You need to be able to kind of, as to your point earlier, I want to hedge against uh, changes in Fed policy, for example. So I want to be able to use an interest rate that allows me to do that. So derivatives market is absolutely crucial uh, for adoption of SOFR. Just remember that the euro dollar market is massive compared to the size of the actual underlying trades that go into LIBOR. So if you think about just the size of euro dollar futures, and I think it's something like two or three million uh, contracts that get traded on a daily basis, you compare that to what really amounts to about $150 million a day in AA financial CP issuance, you get to see how the derivatives market is actually far more significant, at least in terms of size, than the actual cash market. In the case of SOFR, it's the opposite. We have a much bigger cash market, right? SOFR volume is about a trillion dollars. And, you know, something like, I don't know, and I'm gonna, probably going to get this wrong, but a few hundred thousand contracts are trading on a daily basis in SOFR futures. So again, you know, I think the perspective here is the same, which is that the cash market, a lot of volume futures market needs to develop in order for the for broader adoption of SOFR. So just talking about the transition and potential problems, is is half-hearted transition a place where we could see some difficulty? So for instance, if a company is borrowing at a LIBOR-based rate, but they're getting money from a SOFR-based swap, that could end up being like quite a bad mismatch, I, I would imagine. Does that come up at all? That comes up uh, frequently. So the... Um issue is particularly acute for certain types of banks uh, whose you know lending activity is all based off of kind of LIBOR and their funding is also off of LIBOR if they have to start making loans off of SOFR, but their funding is kind of uh, all off of uh, LIBOR. There's a mismatch. You know, the the big concern that people have is that, you know, you've got a a lending rate that implicitly includes a bank credit component and you know a borrowing rate let's say that's based off of a risk free rate what happens in an environment let's say where there's a flight to quality and people are piling into treasuries and uh, repo and those rates are falling but your borrowing is all based off of libor and that's moving in the other direction because bank credit risk is going up. And there's no easy solution to that, to be honest. You can, again, rely on the derivatives market to kind of hedge some of that. But, you know, the concern that people have is that there's a mismatch there. And, you know, the answer to this is that there will be a market uh, that develops and picks up volume to kind of 
offset that rally risk, if you want to call it that, there'll be a cost associated with it, right? Dealers are going to charge people for that. But again, it, it does add to the cost of transitioning to SOFR. Uh, last question, Joe, because I know you have to go. But um, as all these issues crop up, does it make you maybe more sympathetic to the LIBOR process as it was? Like maybe there's a benefit to having banks come up with interest rates. Uh, you know, clearly it's embedded in the financial system as well. But maybe uh, maybe you can make an argument even that it's counter cyclical. I'm being a little bit facetious, by the way. <laughs> I suppose you could. But to be honest, I'd much rather have an interest rate that's based on transactions um, and transparent transactions that I can look at. I struggle because you know I can look at repo and I think I have a decent understanding of what you know are the factors that move and drive repo. I have little or no transparency into bank borrowing rates beyond what I can see in, you know, the commercial paper market. And oftentimes I'm, I see movements in LIBOR of, you know, in some cases, a couple of basis points, and I have no explanation for that move. That to me makes it a difficult benchmark interest rate to use if you, you know, if you can't understand why it's moving on a day-by-day basis. SOFR, on the other hand, I can kind of get, right? I kind of understand why it moves up and down. I may not be able to forecast it on a daily basis with precision, but I at least kind of understand what's going on in that market. There's a lot less transparency in, um, you know, in the uh, markets that are underlying LIBOR. And I don't want to get into the all of the details, but LIBOR is increasingly relying on level three submissions, which basically require inputs from various different markets and different weightings attached to them. So you're getting even less transparency in the submission process uh, as LIBOR moves further and further, clo- uh, closer and closer to its um, its deadline. Well, Joe, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. That was great. I learned a lot. I enjoyed that conversation. I I know we got a little bit um, detailed in in some parts of it, but I I think that's the way to go, given that so much of the transition away from LIBOR is actually all about those technicalities. Like, how do you amend the contracts? which never foresaw this notion that one day we would be moving away from LIBOR. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I do think like in my mind, this idea that it's like, okay, well, LIBOR roughly trades in line with every other interest rate most of the time. And so far, more or less trading in line with policy rates, except for some occasional deviations. So why can't you just swap them? And I thought Joe did a great, uh, job explaining why nothing is remotely that simple when you're talking about rewriting contracts that never had this kind of uh, one step shift in mind. Right. And the other thing that this really puts me in mind of is that zombie LIBOR idea. So not only do you have a shrinking pool of banks that are actually submitting their LIBOR estimates, uh, as Joe mentioned, 
but you also have those estimates getting priced off level three uh, assets, which I don't know if people remember, but those are the things that are are the most difficult to sort of price. So there's this notion that LIBOR is getting sort of sketchier and sketchier while the entire world is still trying to get to a place where so far so far is the default rate. You know what this this whole transition debate really reminds me of, Tracy? Are you going to say Bitcoin? I'm really worried. No, 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 nothing, <laughs> nothing like that. Okay, no, go no, on. What like does that. it remind you of? Um, you know how like every once in a while, like people will be talking about some social network and like, oh, Facebook mm. sucks. Facebook takes our privacy and or Facebook, whatever. Why can't we all just switch to something new or Twitter sucks. Why can't we switch to something new? And it never seems to happen. And the reason is like network effects of a thing that everyone coalesce around are not, there's no easy way to just sort of like, all right, folks, let's all just jump at once. Because even if, if half the people jump, then it, then the, each of the new networks is not half as valuable. They're much less valuable because for obvious reason, network effects compound. It makes sense when people are all on the same thing. So many things that we like talk about in the real world, we're like, this sucks. Why can't we move mm-hmm. off it? Whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whether it's the struggles that we've seen of the entire world being dependent on the US mm-hmm. dollar for trade. And of course, this essentially all come down with this problem of it's just not so easy for us all to jump at the same time onto the new thing even if we can clearly identify the new thing is better. See, now I thought you were going to start talking about Bitcoin because, of course, network effects uh, were at play there when it came to cryptocurrency adoption. Well, I guess that there's that too, yeah. but, you know, no need, to, no need to bring Bitcoin. Okay, yes, I feel kind of bad. All right, let's leave it there before um, I say anything <laughs> else. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.